Welcome to Set for Life with Pastor Ray Jensen of Calvary Chapel Pearland. You can find us at setforliferadio.com. Romans 10.9 says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. So let's listen from God's Word, verse by verse, on how we can prepare for the coming of the Lord Messiah Jesus, who died on the cross, so that you can be set for life. once had a friend of mine, he told me about this company that was going not so well. And they brought in this man that they said, this is your job is to bankrupt this company, drive it in the ground. So they brought the guy in and he happened to be a believer and he did not have the defeatist attitude. So what he did was he fired everybody in the company that would not get on board with the vision. And he actually turned it around. In other words, his leadership ushered in blessing. And we're going to see that today in 1 Kings 4, Solomon's front runners. Now, before we get into this, I want you to know I don't speak a lick of Hebrew. I am redneck, fifth-generation Texan. I'm going to struggle with a lot of these names, and I have really tried, but I've just got to go through it now. So here we are in 1 Kings 4, verse 1, Solomon's administration. So King Solomon was king over all Israel, and these were his officials. Azariah, the son of Zadok, the priest, Elihareph, and Ahijah, the sons of Shisha, scribes, Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, the recorder. Now, the first time I saw this, when I got into 1 Kings 4, I thought, uh-oh, you got that big long list of names, this guy, that guy. And I thought, oh, what kind of big inspiration can I make out of a huge list of names? I thought I was in trouble. If you keep it in context, I remembered about how Solomon had just been given great discernment. And so Solomon had to use his discernment to choose a good administration. This kind of makes me think about how whenever a president takes office, he has to carefully choose a new administration, one that will help him lead well. And so this administration that Solomon chose, they were chosen according to his God-given discernment. I want you to look in verse 3 where it shows the scribes. You know, when you think of a scribe, you always think about guys writing down scriptures. Scribes did so much more than this. Scribes were professional writers. They knew how to make good, detailed, effective, well-worded documents. You know, when you consider that a leader has to, at times, exercise foreign policy with other nations to, to generate commerce, you've got to have some guys that know how to draft good documents. And so consider if a military strike ever failed and did not work out right, you don't want that to go down unnoticed. You want to have it documented. The scribes would document this because you don't want to repeat the same mistake again. It's got to be on record. And so scribes had a hand in military records. Well, what about treaties? Scribes again. And so these scribes, they would draft up official documents. So there's a lot of discernment that went into choosing these guys. Then verse 3 says that Jehoshaphat was the recorder, which means he recorded, he kept all the records of all the affairs 
of the kingdom. He probably kept and managed a lot of what the scribes produced. A lot of the documents would end up with Jehoshaphat. Now, Jehoshaphat, he had served with David as David's recorder back in 2 Samuel 8. So we can see that Solomon was very careful with his good discernment that God had given him to keep some of David's trusted men as he had to install a good and godly administration to oversee the land of Israel that he himself ruled. So it's very important, this discernment that Solomon was still exercising here. Let's recall from 1 Chronicles 22 and 9. Behold, a son shall be born to you, who shall be a man of rest, and I will give him rest from all his enemies all around. His name shall be Solomon, for I will give peace and quietness to Israel in his days. Now, the Lord guided Solomon to set specific people in place as front runners to the promises. These front runner leadership guys, they would usher in the promises of God that he said would happen. They were the front runners to bring it in. Now, I want you to remember that word today, front runners. I want you to remember that term, front runner, because we're going to come back to it. But Solomon's administration, they were handpicked as front runners to usher in the peace that God had promised. First Kings 4 and 4. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, over the army, Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, Azariah, the son of Nathan, over the officers, Zabud, the son of Nathan, a priest and the king's friend, Abishar, over the household, and Adoniram, the son of Abda, over the labor force. Now, okay, so we've got these other good godly guys that are taking up key positions in the nation to set up, usher in the promise of peace that the Lord said would come. Do you remember Abiathar? He was fired from the priesthood by Solomon back in chapter 2 because he tried to help Adonijah steal the throne. So the question here now is, why was Abiathar's name listed here in King Solomon's administration? Why is he in the list? Apparently, Abiathar still retained the honor after he was removed from office. So remember, Solomon said to Abiathar, he said, you deserve death, but I will not have you executed. So let's understand the picture here. Here's Abiathar, this guy that messed up, and he was disqualified from service. He was let go from the priesthood, but he still retained the honor. His name was still kept in the list. There is a Jesus parallel here that I will come back to later. Let's move on in 1 Kings 4 and 7. And Solomon had 12 governors over all Israel who provided food for the king and his household. Each one made provision for one month of the year. These are their names. And here's where I struggle. Lord, help me. <laughs> Ben-Hur in the mountains of Ephraim, Ben-Decker in Mekaz, Shalbim, Beth-Shemesh in Elon, Beth-Hanan, Ben-Hesed in Araboth. To him belongs Socho and all the land of Hafer. Ben-Abinadab in all the regions of Dor. He had Tapheth, the daughter of Solomon, as wife. Bana, the son of Ahilud, and Tanakh, Megiddo, and all Bethshean, which is beside Zaratan, below Jezreel, from Bethshean to Abel-Meholah, as far as the other side of Jokneam. Ben-Geber in Ramoth-Gilead. To him belonged the towns of Jer, the son of Manasseh, in Gilead. To him also belonged the region of Argob and Basham, 60 large cities with walls and bronze gate bars. Ahinadab, the son of Edo, in Mahanaim, 
Ahimez and Naphtali. He also took Basemath, the daughter of Solomon, as wife, Bana, the son of Hushai, and Asher, and Aloth, Jehoshaphat, the son of Parua, and Issachar, Shemai, the son of Elah, and Benjamin, Geber, the son of Uri, in the land of Gilead, in the country of Sihon, king of the Amorites, and of Og, king of Bashan. He was the only governor who was in the land. Lord, help me for my Hebrew friends that just had to hear me chewing in their ears with my redneck Texan. I just trip over all those names. And you know what? It's okay, because I'm going to do the best I can with the tongue I have. (laughs) So anyway, we see Solomon's wisdom was here at work once again, and that he got 12 governors to supply provisions, all 12 of them covered for the whole year. And two governors were Solomon's sons-in-law. Ahimaaz listed there in verse 15, he was possibly the son of Zadok the priest who took over when Abiathar was disqualified and dismissed from service. So there was some close family involved with governing, and that would generate loyalty to the king. So it was still good discernment for Solomon to pick these guys. And some of these guys were replacements of David's enemies, and some were brought over from having served David before. So the discernment is there. He has picked a good cabinet, a good administration. First Kings 4 and 20, the prosperity and wisdom of Solomon's reign. Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand by the sea in multitude, eating and drinking and rejoicing. So Solomon reigned over all kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines as far as the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. So I want you to take notice of how Solomon's reign, how far did that extend to? What were the dimensions? What was the area? It says from the river to the land of the Philistines and to Egypt. Now, this is a very significant set of dimensions here, what these borders are that was just laid out before us. Because long prior to this time in history, it says in Genesis fifteen eighteen, on the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your descendants, I've given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Parasites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. What this says here is that all the land that Solomon ruled over here in 1 Kings 4 are the same dimensions that God outlined to Abram back in Genesis 15. So God promised this exact area to Israel hundreds of years prior to this time in 1 Kings 4, and then this was all of what Solomon ruled over when he took the throne of Israel. What was promised before, Solomon had influence and rule over in 1 Kings 4. Now, this does not mean that the Abrahamic covenant that God gave to him was fulfilled in Solomon's reign, because actually not all of this area belonged to Israel yet. In 1 Kings 4, it says that Solomon reigned over all of the kingdoms. Kingdoms is plural. It doesn't say he ruled over the kingdom of Israel that extended to this area. Kingdoms. In other words, there were multiple kingdoms that were spread out over that land that was not part of Israel yet. The part that God promised to Israel, all this area that God said would belong to Israel, did not belong to them yet, but there were kingdoms in all those areas that did fill that territory, and Solomon had reign over all of them. They were in submission to him. Okay, Israel did not yet fill the dimensions of the covenant yet, but 
All the nations paid tribute. They'd paid taxes to Israel. Now, these nations were not Israelite. They carried their own identity. They were not part of Israel, but they were in submission to support Israel. Israel was the superpower at that time. You know, when I see things like this in the Bible, things that just, I mean, they just fit, you know, they if, like all these nations that fit that area that God promised, it amazes me how the Lord limited the territories of all these other nations just so that they would all collectively fill the exact dimensions of God's covenant promise towards Israel. Imagine if you were living in that day, what people in that day would be thinking. If they saw these nations submitting to Israel, you would be thinking, hey, don't all these nations fill what we're supposed to have? Aren't they filling the areas that we're supposed to be getting? They would see these nations that it would be an in-your-face reminder, obvious reminder, set upon a world stage internationally that God's unfulfilled covenant promises are still out there on the horizon, waiting yet to be fulfilled. People would see this. No one would be able to see all these nations fitting the exact puzzle piece and somehow miss the fact that God was shouting, Hello, Israel, we have a good future ahead together. It's coming, it's going to happen, and it's going to be good. This is what the people would have seen in that day. Look, these nations fill the area God promised to us, and they're in submission to us. You can't miss a statement that's that big. 1 Kings 4 and 22. Now Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour, 60 cores of meal, 10 fatted oxen, 20 oxen from the pastures, and 100 sheep, besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fatted fowl. For he had dominion over all the region on this side of the river from Tipsa even to Gaza, namely over all the kings on this side of the river. And he had peace on every side all around him. And Judah and Israel dwelt safely, each man under his vine and his fig tree, from Dan as far as Beersheba all the days of Solomon. So look at this. Here's the promise of God being worked out just as God said. Solomon's rule would be he'd be a man of rest, a man of peace for Israel, and they had it. But like I said, Israel itself did not yet fill the dimensions of the Abrahamic covenant because in verse 25 right here, it says that Israel only spanned from Dan to Beersheba. Israel was not as big as it was promised to be. And I'll give you a little hint right now. Today in our time, Israel is not as big right now as God said it would be. That means Israel is going to expand greatly in the future. You just keep your eye on Israel and watch that. So I think the reason that Solomon's rule extended to the covenant borders was so that God could keep Israel reminded of the promise that was yet to come. But despite being smaller, a smaller nation, look at all the prosperity that Israel had. Look at all the flour, the oxen, the sheep, and all the livestock that they have listed here. And this was per day. You have to have an extremely fruitful land to be able to crank out that much stuff every single day. Now, how many past books have we been through together? Those of you that have been following with me for a while, we've been going through the history. How many times have we read, when Israel was in poverty, they were overrun by enemies. Usually it was they were in turmoil because the Israelites had slapped God in the face with deliberate sin. So how did they get so prosperous all of a sudden? 
because they had a king and an administration under him that feared the Lord God, and they were obedient to him. Therefore, they set their laws and ordinances in agreement with God's will. So do you know what this tells me? Any nation that does not fear the Lord will not prosper. However, any nation that does fear the Lord and obeys him will prosper. Look at Israel here in 1 Kings 4. Now, 1 Kings 4 and 26. Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. And these governors, each man in his month, provided food for King Solomon and for all who came to King Solomon's table. There was no lack in their supply. They also brought barley and straw to the proper place for the horses and the steeds, each man according to his charge. Again, we're given this picture of great prosperity, not only in agricultural produce, but look at all the horses, the chariots that Solomon had. Guys, this means military. This is like the same as saying tanks and and fighter jets and aircraft carriers. They had horses and chariots and lots of military. This means Israel was very well capable of fighting off any foreign enemies. They're going to have a time of peace, and they're going to have a great military to ensure that that peace stays in place. Do you remember King Saul's first military victory in 1 Samuel 11? That's what this brought me to, made me think about. In 1 Samuel 11, the people of Jabesh-Gilead, they were being messed with by somebody, right? So Saul, King Saul took some oxen, and he cut them up into pieces, and he sent them out all over the land with messengers and saying, whoever does not go out with Saul and Samuel to battle, so shall be done to their oxen. That was the extremity that Saul had to go through to get a fighting force together, Israel's first real army put together. But look at Israel now in 1 Kings 4. They've got this huge military. They're very productive. There is nobody is going to mess with this. They're just too powerful. Again, remember the Lord promised David that Solomon's rule would be one of peace. Now, even Egypt, Israel's former oppressor, this was a time when Egypt was a lot weaker than they had been, and I believe the Lord brought Egypt down weaker at this time, but even they had a peace deal going on with Israel. Look at how the Lord was blessing his people, Israel. First Kings 4 and 29. And God gave Solomon wisdom and exceedingly great understanding and largeness of heart like the sand on the seashore. Thus Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the men of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt, for he was wiser than all men, than Ethan, the Ezrahite, and Haman, Chalcol, and Darda, the sons of Mahal. His fame was in all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. Also, he spoke of trees from the cedar tree of Lebanon, even to the hyssop that springs out of the wall. He spoke also of animals, of birds, of creeping things, and of fish, and men of all nations from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Okay, God promised Solomon to give him a wise and understanding heart in the previous chapter, and look, here was God making good on that promise. Friends, God always, always, always delivers on his promises. He knows how to make his promises work. Now, last time in 1 Kings 3, I talked about how archaeological digs have turned up this, these incredible technological finds 
And it always leaves these modern scientists wondering, how on earth did they figure out how to do this kind of stuff back then? These ancient cultures learned how to do this incredible stuff because they listened to Solomon. It says here that all these different nations, they traveled the entire earth to basically come to Solomon University to hear King Solomon give lectures about all the things he knew. And then these people carried what they learned from him back to their nations again, and they took it home to implement it. And then thousands of years later, we dig these crazy things up and ask, how did they do that? You know, the next time you see one of those TV shows, some discovery kind of show where the narrator says, scientists are baffled at how ancient people were able to achieve such enormous feats as this, then you stand up, you point at the TV and say, why don't you read the Bible? It says how they did it. (laughs) Just read the Bible. It's there. You know, when I went to Bible college, oh my gosh, I had bad grades in high school. I did terrible in English. I had, I remember in English class my senior year, I had to pass the test with a, a 70 on that test to pass the whole course to graduate on time and walk out of high school with my friends and never come back again. So it all wrote on this test. Well, my English teacher, oh, she did not like me because I didn't do well at English at all. I guess I didn't really try like I could have, but She was grading my final exam, and I was standing right there watching her. You know, I wanted to know, am I walking? Am I gone? Am am I a graduating senior or not? And this stern, just soured look came over her face, and I thought, oh, no, I failed. And I said, so what did I get? She looked up at me just angry. She goes, you made a 69.7, which rounded up to a 70. So I graduated and took off, right? (laughs) So I was not good at English. Well, when I came in to, to, to do Bible college, I, I was called to do Bible college. I thought, oh, man, this is going to be Bible college. This is going to be fun. We're going to study the Bible, you know. And I had no idea that going to Bible college is like taking one ginormous English course because you had to do lots of reading, you had to do lots of writing, and you had to convey effectively what you read so that you can convey it to other people, just like what I'm doing with you right now. You had to write Turabian format times Roman 12 uh, font, 25, 30 pages report due in like two seconds and all. You had to know what you were doing. So they expected some level of English capacity, reading, writing, grammar, all that, before you even got rolling. I thought, oh, I'm doomed. I can't do this. So when I went to the Bible college, uh, they had to take me through an English placement test to see where I stood so they could gauge me. They said, take this test. Before I went to go take it, I said, oh, Lord God, this is where I really need you. And I remember reading, Lord, you gave Solomon great wisdom and discernment. You gave it to him. He didn't have to research it. You just gave it to him. Just boom. It was right there in his head all of a sudden. I said, Lord, could you do that for me here now so that I could move along in Bible college and go to this calling that you have for me? And guess what, guys? I'm not kidding you. He just flipped it on like a switch. It was just there. I did the whole English uh, placement test. I wrote the paper. I did the reading. I did it right there in front of people and I turned it in. They said I aced it. And then they looked at my credits from a technical degree that I didn't think had anything to do with Bible college, but it actually transferred. And they said, get out of here, go to the other side of the building to the bachelor's office, start there. And I started there at the bachelor's side and I got my bachelor's degree when I went intending to get an associate's. I got a bachelor's degree and then after that I went and got a master's degree and I made A's. I did good. I did good through my bachelor course. I did. I even did good in the master's. 
you for listening to Set for Life. We hope you can join us next time, unless Jesus returns for us first. Set for Life is the radio ministry of Pastor Ray Jensen of Calvary Chapel Pearland. We invite you to subscribe to our podcast at setforliferadio.com. Hi, this is Ray Jensen. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to encourage you in God's Word. If the Bible doesn't excite you, then you're not reading it. I want you to remember that you are not worthless. You are priceless. Messiah Jesus died on the cross to redeem you so that you can be set for life. You'll be set.